Earlier this year, the Food and Drug Administration approved the first biosimilar drug for use in the United States, Sandoz's Zarxio, a version of the biologic drug Nupigen. Although the availability of biosimilars and other follow-on biologics could mean lower prices for patients, manufacturers have to contend with certain protections for brand-name biologic drugs. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Aaron Kesselheim, an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and a member of the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Kesselheim has co-authored a prospective article about Zarxio and the hurdles that manufacturers of follow-on biologics are facing. Dr. Kesselheim, you write in your article that the pre-authorization requirements and high cost sharing that are associated with many biologics have resulted in substantial burdens for patients. Do many of these drugs have patents that have expired as the patents for Nupigen did? Well, first of all, let me say it's a pleasure to be chatting with you about this. And I think in answer to your question, yes, there are a number of biologic drugs that have been available on the U.S. market now for decades, not unlike Nupigen, which was originally approved in 1991, I believe. There are other similar biologic drugs like Epigen, a drug for people with anemia, Remicade, a drug for people with inflammatory diseases. Those drugs have been available in the U.S. market now for decades, and the original patents covering the underlying active ingredient for those products tend to be expired. In the case of a small molecule drug, there there would usually be a process after those patents expire for generic versions to enter and then the price of the product to fall. That hasn't been the case in the context of biologic drugs until the 2010 legislation setting up the pathway leading to the approval of Zarxio. But in short, yes, there are a number of drugs out there that this pathway could easily apply to right now, very commonly used biologic drugs that are important for a lot of people and still cost a lot of money. So as you say, in 2010, the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act is part of the ACA created this regulatory pathway for follow-on biologics. How does that pathway compare with the process for approving small molecule generic drugs? It's similar in theory. The theory is that preclinical testing of a product will allow demonstration that one product is similar to another product and allow the FDA to approve that product without requiring duplication of the larger, more expensive clinical trials that were done for the original product. That's the general principle of a generic drug or follow-on biologic pathway. However, the two pathways do also differ in a number of ways. For small molecule drugs, largely all that is necessary is for the generic manufacturer to show that the product is the same structure and then to conduct some very limited studies showing that it has the same pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics as the original product. For the follow-on biologic pathway, a much more rigorous and involved process of demonstrating that the product is analytically the same, has the same structure and function are required, and then some smaller confirmatory clinical trials will in most cases be required in order to demonstrate that the product is approvable. And rightly so, because biologic products are much more complex and much harder to characterize. So the amount of studies that are required to approve a follow-on biologic will be much larger in scale and in scope and take longer time than for a, a small molecule drug, even though the general principle of trying to demonstrate similarity 
between two products without conducting the entire array of clinical trials is the same. You say in your article that follow-on biologic alternatives to several brand-name drugs have been available in Europe for years. Why has it taken the United States so much longer to address this issue? The United States legal system started a few years behind the ball. In Europe, they have been thinking about this and working on developing protocols for development of follow-on biologics since the early mid-2000s. In the U.S., there wasn't even uh, congressional authorization for a pathway until, as you said earlier, 2010. And then at that point, the FDA was granted the authority to create the pathway and then since then has been working on developing the principles of that pathway. So we got started a little bit late in creating a structure under which follow-on biologics can be approved. At the same time, I think we've also been going very slow and measured in our approach to developing these pathways. I think that it makes sense when you're creating something a little bit out of whole cloth to make sure that all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted as well as you possibly can. And I think that this deliberative process has also made it a little bit slower than in Europe. But I think that the experience in Europe, where right now there are about 22 follow-on biologics available in various different locations and have been used successfully by patients provides good evidence that this same system can flourish in the U.S. once it is fully worked out. You say in your article that post-approval surveillance of these follow-on biologics is going to be a major challenge in the years ahead. Does the FDA or individual manufacturers have a plan for conducting such surveillance? Well, I think that manufacturers do routinely conduct surveillance, and the FDA has a number of strategies available in which to do this. There's the classic passive adverse event reporting strategy, although I don't think that's going to be sufficient in this case. I think that follow-on biologics present an interesting enough scientific question that more active surveillance strategies, such as through the FDA's Sentinel system, through which it can more actively monitor products after approval, are going to be necessary. And so I think that the combination of oversight by the FDA as well as oversight by manufacturers. And to be honest, I think that physicians and patients also have a responsibility here as well. In many cases, when there are drug safety issues that arise with patients, those tend to be underreported by the patients and the physicians. And I think that more of a culture of reporting these to the proper authorities will also help this post-approval surveillance of these products. But I mean, I do think that this combination of different oversight conducting this post-market surveillance of these products is really important because, you know, as I said, these are very complex molecules and experience with brand name biologics that, you know, where their formulation has changed slightly leading to changes in the molecular structure of the product demonstrates that there are important safety issues to be cognizant of with these products and close observation of them will be necessary. Going back to the legal side of things, you also note that the patent resolution process can be more complicated for biologics than it is for small molecule drugs. And indeed, Sandoz is currently involved in a lawsuit with Amgen, the manufacturer of Nupogen. What's the status of that case, and how do you see it and such issues being resolved? That's a really complex question, and I think that to answer it very briefly, the litigation is, as we speak today, still under appeal, and a preliminary injunction against Sandoz has been imposed on the court, which is why the product is FDA-approved but still not available yet to U.S. patients. 
But stepping back a little bit, the patent resolution process for small molecule generic drugs is relatively straightforward. The manufacturers submit their patent that they believe cover their products to the FDA. That is publicly available. Generic manufacturers then submit their certification that they have or haven't infringed those patents. And then there's litigation. There tends to be litigation between the brand name and the generic company. In the case of biologic drugs, simplifying a bit, the process tends to occur a little bit behind closed doors where the follow-on biologics manufacturer is supposed to submit their dossier regarding their product to the brand name manufacturer, which is then supposed to evaluate that and decide if any of their patents have been infringed. And this so-called dance is problematic in some ways because there might be trade secrets or other proprietary information that the follow-on biologic manufacturer doesn't want to give naturally to its competitor, the brand name company. And so what happened in the Sandoz Amgen case leading to the approval of this follow-on Filgrastim Nupogen product is that Sandoz opted out of this patent dance and said that they didn't believe that they had infringed any patents and Amgen objected to them doing that. And that's what the source of the litigation is right now. I think that We'll have to see how the litigation ends up. If the court ends up requiring this dance to occur in all scenarios, I think we may need to go back to Congress for a legislative fix because this requirement for competitors to share secret information could very easily delay the development of these products even further, despite the science and the clinical testing being available. If it's true that these legal maneuvers end up being a bottleneck in the process that might require legislative fix. So we'll have to see in the next few months how this and other similar cases, there's another case regarding a follow-on version of infliximab or Remicade that involves similar questions, and we'll have to see how these cases shake out. It is one of a number of hurdles that, as we talked about earlier, have made the introduction of follow-on biologics in the U.S. market much slower than they have been in Europe and that some drug policy experts have thought is necessary. Finally, a question about potential cost saving. Some states have passed so-called carve-outs to drug selection laws that authorize or require pharmacists to substitute lower-cost generics for brand-name drugs. How do you see those carve-outs affecting biologics, and what will that do for costs and choice for patients? Well, already in the case of follow-on biologics, the predicted cost savings is far lower than for classic generic small molecule drugs for a number of reasons development costs for follow-on biologics are higher. The number of potential competitors is expected to be lower. All of these various hurdles that we've talked about raise the cost of entry. And so the actual cost of cost savings for follow-on biologics is expected to be much lower than it is for small molecule generic drugs. And in Europe, they've observed cost savings ranging anywhere from in the single-digit percent to 60 or 70%, depending on the negotiating power of the buyer. But on average, the cost savings is around 25 to 35%, which is much lower than for generic small molecule drugs. And these pieces of these carve-outs in states threaten to decrease cost savings further. The basis for a lot of the savings in small molecule drugs is that pharmacies are able to automatically substitute generic drugs that FDA has certified as interchangeable. So actually... Right now, the Zarxio drug is not considered to be an interchangeable product, 
And a lot of the other follow-on biologics that the FDA is actively considering are not considered to be interchangeable products, even though they are follow-on versions of the original products. So these carve-outs wouldn't apply to these products. But in the future, if the FDA does approve a truly interchangeable follow-on biologic, that interchangeable follow-on biologic by virtue of the state drug substitution laws will be expected to reduce costs even further. And these carve-outs at the state level that make substitution harder will just reduce that cost savings that may be attributed to that interchangeable product. Thank you, Dr. Kesselheim.